Are you ready? We're going to do a little deep end diving this morning, right? So let's, you know, I try to ease in for you sometimes, but we're, we're going to stand on the deep end. So I, just, just warning you, right? Uh, have you found it interesting? Uh, maybe even a bit irritating when the whole country gets to weigh in on their opinion of how guilty someone is when they get shot by a police officer. Yeah, we're going there, right? Or, do you find it interesting, maybe a bit irritating, when the whole country gets to weigh in on their opinion of what a police officer should do in a certain situation when they come up? Uh, I I, I don't know, maybe just a uh, crazy, for instance, say a young woman is threatening another young lady with a knife, and she is not, and she's shot and killed by a police officer. Some of us want to listen, state emphatically that she intended to hurt or even kill the other woman, so a shot was justified. And then some of us want to suggest that what the police officer should have done is like the old Wild West, right? Remember John Wayne means he shoot the gun up in the air and everything automatically is going to be all peaceful, right? Well, I have news for you. There's not a police officer that's ever been trained to shoot a gun up in the air, right? That's only in John Wayne movies, right? So it becomes a bit interesting, maybe a bit irritating when the whole world gets to weigh in on certain situations. Now that I've stirred significant pots in the room today. Everyone is wondering, well, where Rick lands on this. And Rick never speaks about these things for really good reason. But here's my answer. Be quiet and pray. Be quiet. And pray. Listen, there is no way that any of us know what was happening in that situation in Columbus this week. So don't pretend that you're some expert by watching body cam and some guy's uh, surveillance camera from across the street and think that you know exactly what should have happened or what did happen or what went into happening in that situation. There is, quite frankly, no way you know. And quite frankly, (laughs) I love you, right? No one cares what you think. I can guarantee you this, there are not easy answers to that scenario. I can guarantee you this, that what happened is tragic. Listen, the death of any 16-year-old girl is tragic. Just as it is tragic for the death of anyone in our valley, just as it is tragic to realize how broken we can be in our culture and in our lives that would cause us to do things that seem unreasonable, irrational. So some of you are going, well, wait a minute, didn't you just say be quiet and pray and yet you're talking about it? Seems to be some contradiction here. It's a good question, but let me tell you why I have brought it up this morning. I did debate on using it this morning, but I took the risk because I do think that, listen, often we treat the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ like we treat the body cam of a heightened police story. Follow me. Uh, Some people take a quick look at the gospel through a biased worldview and they judge it as foolishness. They look at the gospel and they judge it as irrelevant, old-fashioned, for the weak-minded. Even some Christians look at the gospel as something they turn to only in trouble, only on Sunday mornings 
or to create arguments over, or even worse, to beat people up with. None of you, of course, coming to church is perfect. If you're visiting today, none of us have ever done any of those things. We take the gospel and... And by the gospel, I mean the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we tend to use it for our own good rather than see it for the beautiful thing that it is. And our text this morning, believe it or not, is a beautiful Old Testament picture of the deep beauty of the gospel. And so I call us to pay attention to things that are simple, things that are review for many of you this morning, but been praying for you that as we address this very long text this morning, that we would see more in abundance, more clearly, even as Dick prayed, that we would be filled with the fullness of the Spirit to see the gospel more beautifully than we've ever seen it before, even though we've heard it a million times. So if you're here this morning, you've been a Christian for a hundred years, some of you are getting there, a hundred years, right? Or if you're here this morning, you've only been a Christian a week, the reality is, is that we have this grand opportunity this morning to see the beauty of the gospel from an Old Testament text. That God is talking about the gospel before the gospel is a reality. And we learn from it. I've reflected a bit this week on the beautiful words of Psalm 1. When the psalmist wrote in verse 3, talking about the Christian, he says, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. I, I think our text provides a look today at the roots of your tree, of my tree, of our tree planted by the streams, the depth of the gospel in our lives as we see it foretold in the Old Testament, even in the life of Elisha. And it is a long text, so we need to get to it. You ready? All right, I'll go somewhere else and teach. No, I'm just kidding. I, I, I know you're all ready. Turn with me in our ongoing discovery of the life of Elisha, a messenger of hope, uh, beginning in 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 24 this morning. We're going to take it in chunks this morning. It is a long text, a long story, but it is the story of the gospel, and I want you to see it for what it is. We're going to make our way all the way through chapter 7, and we will again see that God is making all things new doing so through the beautiful picture of the gospel of Jesus. So we're going to look at four things this morning, the desperation of our sin, the promise of hope, the great rescue, and the amazing faithfulness of God. I know they don't all start with the same letter, they don't even rhyme, it's hard to remember, but I'll trust your intellect and maybe your note-taking, right? So here they are, the desperation of our sin, the promise of hope, the great rescue, and the amazing faithfulness of God. We start in the desperation of our sin. If you turn there, it's 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 24. This is the word of God. It says, Afterward, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, mustered his entire army and went up and besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine in Samaria as they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and the fourth part of a cab of dove's dung, these are good pictures, for five shekels of silver. Now, as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him, saying, Help my lord, O king. And he said, If the lord will not help you, how shall I help you from the threshing floor or from the winepress? And the king asked her, What is your trouble? 
She answered, this woman said to me, give your son that we may eat him today and we will eat my son tomorrow. Sounds like a bad deal. So we boiled my son and ate him. And on the next day, I said to her, give your son that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. When the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. Now he was passing by on the wall. And the people looked and behold, he had sackcloth beneath on his body. And he said, my God. Do so to me and more also, if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. Elisha was sitting in his house and the elders were sitting with him. Now the king had dispatched a man from his presence, but before the messenger arrived, Elisha said to the elders, Do you see how this murderer has sent to take off my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold the door fast against him. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? And while he was still speaking with him, the messenger came down to him and said, This trouble is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? (laughs) Now, can I just tell you, this is one of these texts that you would never preach on, right? Unless it was like in the next text that you had to preach on. Uh, these, These visuals are... A bit crazy, and we try to be a family show around here, right? This is hard in the midst of it, but let me try to give you an understanding of of the desperation of the time in which this historian writes. The king of Syria, identified here as Ben-Hadad, has lost patience with Israel. And he goes from small raiding parties that we saw last week in chapter 6 to sending his entire army. And it says they besiege Samaria, the capital of Israel. What does besiege mean? Not a word that we use often today. It means that the army goes and surrounds the city so that no one can get in with materials or get out for their own rescue. It was a familiar war strategy of that day to force the people of a city to starve to death or to turn on one another and kill one another. And it didn't cost one life of the enemy who is now surrounding the city. With me? That's the siege. This is what's happening in Syria, and it's working. Verse 25 tells us that there's a great famine in the land, (laughs) and that a donkey's head, which, listen, is not a delicacy. It wasn't on the McDonald's drive-thru menu, right? It's not something that you said, hmm, can't wait for donkey's head tonight, right? No, if you think about a donkey's head, there's not much meat on a donkey's head, right? But what happened is there's a lot of donkeys still around because they've already killed all the cows and all the other things, goats and sheep and everything that had meat that was good. And so here's a donkey's head. And so you think, wow, then there's got to be a lot of donkey's head. Well, it's so bad that there's very few donkey's head, and even a donkey's head costs an outrageous amount of money. It's the same thing with dove dung, right? So now, this is how desperate we are. We're selling dove dung. A pint of it at an outrageous cost. Why? Because there's nothing else to eat. I don't want you to get necessarily grossed out by donkey's heads and dove dung. What I want you to hear is how desperate the time is. Desperate times call for desperate measures. Our next illustration is hard to imagine, but it shows that it's even worse than we think. The king of Israel is walking around the city. A woman tells a disturbing story. Two moms, you moms can't even begin to fathom this reality, right? They agree. Listen, boil my kid today and we'll eat him. Tomorrow we'll boil your kid and eat that. It's mind-blowing that that kind of 
thought would go through your head after they eat one, the other hides her child, and the mom who is now childless is screaming about the injustice. Again, instead of becoming too caught up in the grossness of this scenario, I want you to hear, I want you to feel the desperation in the scenario. Way beyond, listen, way beyond what we have ever faced or ever can imagine facing in our lifetime is what Israel is feeling. These desperate measures call for a desperate plan of action. The king tears his clothes. He reveals that he's already in mourning over the situation. And so by virtue of this new revelation, he gets on his knees and he repents. He repents for himself and he repents for Israel. Behind him, the organist starts to play just as I am. And he comes forward and he gives his life to God and says, I know that I've done this wrong. It's all my fault. Is that what he did? No, that's not what he did. He did the same thing that Eve did in the garden. All right, when, 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 when God caught her in her sin, well, well, my fault. Right, it's the devil's fault. Same thing, so I won't just pick on you ladies. It's the same thing that Adam did, right? When God found him in the garden. Not my fault, it's that lady you gave me. So here's the king. Rip my garments. This is horrible, this is terrible. But it ain't my fault. Elisha, the man of God. Shouldn't he have done something by now? Well, how can it be that if his head is still on his shoulders by the end of the day, let's go get him. Some commentators say that the king is still a little angry about Elisha letting the Syrians go in last week's story, if you remember. But I would say, quite frankly, that the king is angrier still at God, and he's taking it out on God's man. Nonetheless, he commands that Elisha's head be taken from his shoulder. So the desperation of the people transfers to the desperation of the king, and he is passing it to the desperation of the prophet. Elisha knows the king is coming for him, and so in a bit of a panic, he holds himself in, orders for the door to be secured for protection. And here's the point. Here, here is what I want us to see, that our sin, listen, that our sin, our disobedient, is not a light thing in the eyes of God. In fact, the reality of our sin, if we were to see, for, see it for what it is, would throw us into desperate times that are much like what Israel is facing in this story. Let me let that sink in. Because if, if, if I can be honest, I, I way too often don't think of my sin in these desperate measures. Too often my sin, my sin seems to be more of a, an inconvenience rather than the weight of a siege and starvation. And I think many of us are in that boat. We, we blame others for our sin. We justify our sin. We say to ourselves, hey, you know, that person down the pew, he's a whole lot worse sinner than I am. I think I'm doing all right. My neighbor, my neighbor's dog, definitely a worse sinner than me, right? So, so we begin to deflect, detract, and we begin to deflate the weight of the reality of sin. 
And I think, yeah, I think this gospel, this, this story helps us to understand the reality of that. Wait, that's, that's what the historian is telling us. This, story. this is how desperate it is. We rarely see our sin as a siege that causes spiritual starvation, that left to its own devices might cause us to do things we ought not to do and not do things that we ought to do, says Paul in Romans 7. We have a hard time seeing the consequences of our sins, the very thing that causes death. But again, Paul tells us that we are dead in our sins, that the wages of our sin is death. This, this is the siege that is on us. I've done it before, but I want to come back and remind us and do it for myself as well as for us to to encourage us, to challenge us, to feel, feel the desperation of Israel under siege because this is our desperation under sin. Feel the weight of that. And feel the weight of the very last verse of chapter 6. The messenger of death, the one who's come for Elisha. He actually repeats the sentiment of the serpent in Genesis chapter 3. He says, why should I wait for the Lord? He asks this question. What can God possibly do for me? It's a great setup question to chapter 7 and the promise of hope. So look at chapter 7. Feel the weight of the desperation of our sin. And then read chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. This is what Elisha said. The one who is the messenger of hope. The one who knows that God is making all things new. This is Elisha's response to what good is God? He says, chapter 7, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord. Tomorrow about this time, a seah of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel. And two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Then the captain on whose hand the king leaned said to the man of God, if the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing actually be? But he said, you shall see it. Elisha says, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. Let me help you understand what's happening. So in the desperate times, a worthless donkey head and a pint of dove dung are outrageously expensive. But in the midst of that desperation, Elisha says that tomorrow within 24 hours, right, that the most basic things that have not been available for months will not only be available, but will be so plentiful that you will get them for an outrageously low price. That, that, a, that an amount of fine, the best flour you could ever imagine, the best barley you could ever imagine, they've been starving for flour and barley. Tomorrow, at the gate of Samaria, like right here, you're going to get that in a, like, like, a, like at a Menard's 11% off price. I don't get anything for that, by the way. What, what is Elisha saying? That literally in 24 hours, everything's going to change. It's so inconceivable that the king's right-hand man says, listen, even if there was some kind of window into heaven, I don't know he, he knew who he was talking to because like Elisha has a window in heaven. But even if there was a window into heaven, this is way too ridiculous. There is no way this can be true. Elisha says almost in riddle form to that messenger, 
Listen, not only will it happen, but you, the servant of the king, will see it, but not partake of it. Remember that. So get this, as it appears to those who are there, right? The prophet is saying, (laughs) this prophet who they're about to take his head off, the prophet is saying that the desperation of the siege is going to turn into abundance. That's what he's saying. For a second, I often try to help you think this way, right? So the first readers of this historical account written by the historian would have been a people that have already been exiled from their nation, separated from their family. They're slaves and servants in a different world, and they're reading this, and what they must be hearing is, listen, God has the power to change anything at any time. In whatever fashion, he wants to change it. Now, maybe most relevantly, hear it it for yourself. Here it is, a people under the weight of the exile of sin, the very thing that separates you from God, the desperation of our sin, and hear it as a promise that there is a day coming when the slavery of sin will be released, will be lifted, and that we will live in a day of abundance, the abundance of God's grace. Uh, it's, it's in line with some familiar verses, say uh, the prophecy of Isaiah 9, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Remember that? It was bad times in Isaiah's day. And yet he says, listen, there is a day coming where there is this child who will be born. We know today, because we read it at Christmas every year, that this is Jesus. This is the hope in the midst of desperate times. Uh, It it also reflects uh, the words of Isaiah in Isaiah 53 that says, as he, Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed, that in his crucifixion would come healing, that God has the power at any time and in any way to change everything. Let me be clear. This promise is not just an Old Testament promise of Jesus coming, Jesus dying. It is the promise that while we were yet sinners under the weight of the siege of sin, that Christ came for us, that Christ lived for us. Romans 5 says that Christ died for us. Preachers across this globe, including me, are trying every week to find an illustration to make the point of how bad off we are that we might realize how good God's grace is. And it's right here. Siege of sin, but the promise of hope. Do you hear it this morning? Well, hang on, because it gets even better. Here comes the great rescue. Chapter 7, verses 3 through 15. There were four men who were lepers at the entrance to the gate. And they said to one another, why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, let us enter the city, the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. And if we sit here, we die also. So now come, let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we shall live. And if they kill us, well, we're going to die anyway, so we may as well die at their hand. So they arose 
at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. So they fled. Fled away in the twilight, abandoned their tents, their horses, and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was, and fled for their lives. And when these lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent... <laughs> so look what we found. They ate and drank Pepsi, of course. And they carried off silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. Then they came back and they entered another tent and carried off things from it and went and hid them. Love verse 9. Then they said to one another, This ain't right. This day is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will be take us. And now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. So they came and called to the gatekeepers of the city and told them, we came to the camp of the Syrians and behold, there was no one to be seen or heard there, nothing but the horses tied and the donkeys tied and the tents as they were. Then the gatekeepers called out and it was told within the king's household. And the king rose in the night and said to his servants, I will tell you what the Syrians have done to us. Conspiracy theory, ready? They know that we are hungry. Therefore, they have gone out of the camp. They hide in the open country thinking, hey, when they come to get all of our stuff, we'll take them alive and get them in the city. And one of his servants said, but like, shouldn't we at least check it out? Let some men take five of the remaining horses, not many left, seeing that those who are left here will fare like the whole multitude of Israel who have already perished. Let us send and see. So they took two horses (laughs) and the king sent them after the army of the Syrians saying, go and see. So they went after them as far as the Jordan and behold, all the way was littered with garments and equipment that the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. And the messengers returned and told the king. You you get the story, right? So so, it's so awesome. You you ready? Four lepers at the town gate. They're not allowed to be in the city, right? Because they're lepers. And and so they're going, let's see. Here are our options. If we sit here, we're going to die. If we go into the city, they're going to like all freak out. And we're just going to die with them anyway. The Syrians. Let's take a shot at it, right? What's the worst can happen? They'll kill us. We're going to die anyway. So let's go. And so they make their way into the Syrian camp and no one's there. The historian gives us information that the lepers would not have known, but adds greatly to the greatness of the story. It is likely that the same angelic army, the chariots, the horses, that was on the hillside in chapter 6, when Elisha looked out the window and his messenger saw them on the hillside, that there's more of them than there is of us, that that same army has made themselves known audibly in chapter 7. The Syrians thought it was the Israelites with the help, and they fled, dropping their fine flour and their barley along the way. So the lepers are having a feast. They carry away the plunder. They return for more. When in verse 9 they say to one another, this ain't right. We really should let the people dying in the city know. So they go to the king, tell him, to which he has great doubts that it is true. He comes up with a conspiracy theory. I think the Syrians are waiting in the woods. When we go in there to get all their stuff, they're going to attack us and kill us. We probably shouldn't go. Until one guy says, "Uh, excuse me, sir, shouldn't we at least check it out? He said, "Uh, okay, so we have a few horses left. You two, I don't really like you. Why don't you go and check it out? 
So two guys go in on horses, and they come back and say, it's just as they said. And then at the end of this text, can you imagine the rush of the Israelites to the Syrian camp to devour the plunder? It reminds me of the Marys going to the tomb where Jesus was buried. Remember that story on the day after the Sabbath? Jesus had been crucified. The disciples, a bunch of little boys, are in a room scared to death of what's going to happen to them. But these two women said, listen, we we probably should go and finish the burial rite on Jesus' body. And so they head to the tomb. As they head to the tomb, they're, they're very obviously asking significant questions. What if we're not allowed to get close to the tomb? We've heard that it's being guarded by Roman guards. There's a huge stone. That's probably a problem to getting into the tomb to finish the burial rite. They had lots of questions, but they just did what they thought was right to do. When they get there, there's an earthquake. The guards drop over dead. The stone gets rolled away, and an angel comes down, sits on the stone, and says, Yeah, he's not here. He's risen. They went, Oh, thanks for letting us know. No, like, holy cow! And so they, they begin to run back to the little boys hiding in the room, and, and they're met by Jesus. Everything changed. Why do I mention Mary at the tomb? Because I think in the sovereignty of God, when he did this whole Syrian thing, he was thinking, someday, they're going to be sitting at Covenant Church in 2021, and they're going to make this grand connection, right? That the rescue of the Israelites with the fleeing of the Syrian army is really a foretaste of the reality of this great story of Mary coming to the tomb and Jesus ain't there. And they, listen, crazy thought, might even make the connection that they have died with Christ, that they have risen with Christ, and that they are indeed His, that with Jesus, in a day, everything changes. A couple of things to highlight before I get way too excited. Three things, First, real quickly. God, I, I want you to see in this text that God does the rescue and God alone. God does not say, I will do 80% of the work and you need to finish this off. God makes the way at 100% and simply says, walk in it. He did not leave a single Syrian in the camp to defend it. He removed them all. And likewise, God does not ask for a percentage of our obedience to add to his power for our salvation, but rather he makes the way for our rescue. And he simply asks us to walk in it. God is this rescuer. If I'm God, I I leave a handful of Syrians and let them feel good about themselves because they can beat them up with some ninja thing, right? He doesn't leave anybody there. Nothing but the plunder. Nothing but the abundance. God does the rescue and God alone. Secondly, God uses the humble to collect the reward. I love that the finders of the spoil are lepers that everyone has rejected. Everyone has cast out Listen, they have nothing to lose. If we die, we die. They operate out of a complete desperation themselves. And in that, they find abundance. 
Whew, way too often. The reason that I, that we, have a hard time walking in obedience, walking into the camp, is because we think we have too much to lose in doing so. We start making statements like, God, I'll follow you if, I'll follow you when. The lepers, man, so humble, so desperate, just say, I'll follow you. I'll follow you regardless. Peter says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. James says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. The hymn writer says, nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross. I cling. Our rescue comes when we recognize that we have nothing worthy of saving and desperately fall into God's abundant grace. Thirdly, quickly, and the rescued must not simply abide in their abundance. I love the moment when the lepers realize this ain't right. To keep this all for ourselves. There's a whole sermon here you're going to get in 30 seconds. Even more, listen, they're saying there's way too much for us here. We got to share it. Anybody know where this is going? Right? Do, 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 do you hear the gospel? Believer, hear this today. I, we are way too guilty of a discovering the abundance of God's grace and then simply feasting on it. Like, I'm going to go in the tent and have a big old feast. I'm going to take this stuff over here, Grace, and I'm going to hide it here because I might need it later. Then I'm going to go back and I'm going to get a little bit more, and then I'm going to take some stuff over here and I'm going to hide it here. And then they come back in verse 9 and they go, this ain't right. I'm hoping this morning in my heart, in your heart, that some of us are going... Whoa, like God's grace is an abundance to me. He's rescued me. He's given me everything I need to live with him forever. Am I hiding out in the tent? Or am I saying, this ain't right. I should probably tell somebody else. Somebody who is besieged by sin. Someone who's miserable in the reality of their slavery to their sinfulness to tell them, listen, I've got good news. There's this rescue, the Syrians. The devil has fled. And Jesus has made a way for you to feast on his grace. Shouldn't we tell someone? How cruel would it be to find abundance beyond our consumption and not share it with the starving? Finally this, and this is our last point. I know pastors say that all the time. It really is the last point this morning. See See the amazing faithfulness of God. Look at these last verses, verses 16 through 20 of chapter 7. Then the people went out and they plundered the camp of the Syrians. Get this. So say a fine flour was sold for a shekel and two say is barley for a shekel according to the word of the Lord. Now the king had pointed the captain on those on whose hand he leaned to have charged at the gate and the people trampled him in the gate so that he died as the man of God had said when the king came down to him, for when the son of God had said to the king, two says of barley shall be sold for a shekel and a say of fine flour for a shekel about this time tomorrow in the gate of Samaria. The captain had answered the man of God, if the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could such a thing be? And he said, yeah, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And so it happened to him. For the people trampled him in the gate and he died. Maybe the most important inclusion in this historian's account of this story is the point that what God said would actually happen. 
Within a day, the people of God went from the desperation of outlandish prices for the grossest of foods to the ridiculous abundance of the things that are most basic. It seems as if it is a small detail in light of the great rescue, right? You hear it? There's this amazing rescue. But what does the historian say? Oh, by the way, at the gate of Samaria, barley and fine flour were sold for exactly what God said it would be. And I know it's a little rough, it's a little violent, but the guy that said, what good is the Lord? (laughs) The king actually put him in charge of the gate where he got trampled by all the Israelites trying to get to the plunder. He saw it, but he didn't eat it. He says it twice, maybe three times in that text the historian does. Why would he say it? Because what happened was exactly what God said would happen. He is faithful. He is faithful, amazingly faithful to his promises. I love the words of Joshua 21, 45, as God's people are entering the promised land back in the book of Joshua. Joshua says, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. They all came to pass. They all came to pass. I love that throughout the gospel, I think especially of the triumphal entry, that the writers of the gospel repeatedly say, oh, it was just as Jesus said. (laughs) It gives us hope, does it not, that when the scriptures record that we have died with Christ and risen with Christ, that we know that it is true. That when it says that God knew us before the foundations of the earth and that he has written our story and he's written into it that we would be rescued from sin and given the abundance of heaven, that God's going to keep that word. That as we will sing in just a moment, in Lamentations 3, 22 through 24, it says the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. God is faithful to his promises. God is faithful to his abundance for us as his people, an abundance of grace that rescues us from our overwhelming desperation of sin. People of God, see this morning the beauty of this gospel. See the hidden roots of your tree that are found in the rescue of God and his faithfulness to his promises, roots that bear much fruit as we share the gospel with others. The story of Elisha and the Syrians, listen, is your story. It is your desperation. It is your promise. It is your rescue. And it is his faithfulness to you. In all that he has said, it is your hope that he is indeed, listen, making all things new. So this morning, no no cool story to end the sermon. Why? Because we just heard the coolest story in the world that reinforces the reality of the gospel. So if you are here or you're listening and you have not been sure or, or you've been searching for what it means to be saved from the desperation of your failure and your sin, I hope the Spirit of God has revealed to you today His promise that literally he can make all things new. His promise of rescue you for this morning. And that today you simply say, God, I want to walk in that rescue. For the rest of us who may know of that rescue, but still feel trapped by sin or by our circumstances, hear afresh the beauty 
of the roots of your salvation. Hear the beautiful promises of God. Hear the beautiful story of your rescue. Hear the faithfulness of God extended to you as one whom he loves and rejoice in its beauty. There are a lot of things that want to grab our attention in this world. Things that we will mindlessly talk about while knowing very little of it. In those situations, be quiet and pray. And then turn your attention to the greater things. The things that matter for all eternity. The things that we can know more of as we study this word, the word of God. The beautiful things of the gospel. And the thing that we should be sharing with those who continue to walk under siege of their sin. The beauty of this promise. The glorious beauty of our rescue. And the amazing beauty of God's faithfulness. People of God, preach this gospel to yourselves every day. And then share it with someone else whom you know is under siege of sin. Let's pray.